This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Searchwide Global, the premier executive search firm in the DMO space. Mike Gamble and his team uncover the talent out there that isn't looking, meaning that clients get a far richer candidate base from which to choose than just placing ads in pubs and online. And their client satisfaction rate across multiple metrics is an amazing 98%. If you're looking for a new opportunity or looking for the perfect candidate, call them. You can learn more at searchwideglobal.com. And now on to our show. Billy Kolber is the co-founder and CEO of Hospitable Me, providing inclusive hospitality strategy and training for tourism, retail, and healthcare organizations. He has a degree in biology, but has spent his entire career in travel, running an American Express travel agency before launching Out and About, the very first gay and lesbian travel magazine in the USA. Billy traveled and sang around the world with the Yale Whiffenpoofs and is a two-time annual pie contest champion in Water Island. Those both sound like bonus round questions right there, but they aren't. He's also a third-generation native New Yorker, and he's visited 72 countries. Hell, I'm still working on all 50 states, and he currently lives with his husband in Frankfurt, Germany. Also joining us, Kenny Propora is the co-founder and vice president of Hospitable Me, trained as a journalist at Columbia He has created and curated content for some of the most prominent destination marketing organizations in the world. Kenny is the New York Times bestselling author of The Autumn Balloon, and his work has appeared in The New York Times, Newsweek, BuzzFeed, Salon, and others. He has traveled to more than 25 countries and is a self-proclaimed puppy dog enthusiast and future small batch jam entrepreneur. Billy, Kenny, welcome to DMOU. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. Thank you, Bill. Great to have you guys on. And before we get to your three questions in the bonus round question for both of you, Billy, we understand that you are just back from the WTTC Global Summit in Cancun last month, where you told me it was real live badges and buffets, which (laughs) so many of us have not had a chance to experience. Tell me how surreal that was. It was wonderful in many respects to be back in that environment, which so many of us in this industry have as part of our monthly, if not weekly experience. Yeah. Attendance of about 500 people from many parts of the globe. Asia was underrepresented uh, simply because, you know, a lot of them still can't travel. Right. Uh, The Europeans were there. Uh, Most of us from the U.S. and the U.K. were already vaccinated, so it felt particularly safe. The conference required a rapid test to uh, register. No testing is required currently to enter Mexico. Uh, So that was above and beyond the local recommendations and health precautions. The resort, you know, everything was kept really clean. I've never seen so much hand sanitizer being squirted on my hands in my (laughs) life. It's always strange, I think, to go back to crowded spaces of any kind when we've been isolated for so long. I mean, I've been flying a lot, uh, but it's really my first time at a big crowded resort, being at Cancun airport is like, you know, is busier than it ever is coming in still pretty easy leaving the country because of all the documentation Mm -hmm. that everyone's required to have uh, a zoo. I was grounded for about seven months. So that muscle memory of getting on a plane, going through TSA, you know, maneuvering through airports, which, you know, for guys like us, we do it every week. 
But when you haven't done it for seven or eight months, it's amazing how much you lose. And I just saw an article today that they're saying that there's actually been a lot of near misses in the air because the pilots are not on top of their game because they've been sitting on yeah. their ass for the past seven months. So it's going to take us all a little while, I think, to, to get back in the game. Yeah. It was really good to see that you could have a meeting of 500 people, uh, that you could put in social distance protocols, hand-washing protocols, testing protocols. It felt, you know, for the most part, very safe. The times, you know, in the bar after the convention where you might be sitting fairly close to another party that may not necessarily be vaccinated or have been tested. You know, still some anxious moments, as I think there are throughout the travel journey. Mm -hmm. But, you know, certainly within the context of where we are now, the resort did an amazing job and the conference did an amazing job of really holding the health security measures in place. And I think we're going to start seeing, you know, I know I'm booked for a lot of conferences starting in July and August. So I think we will be returning to that space pretty soon. And it feels great to be with our colleagues again, face-to-face. There really is nothing like that. And we're looking forward to catching up with you face-to-face once again this summer as well when we're out on the road. So for your first question, guys, for a number of DMOs, the inclusion of messages and imagery designed to connect with the LGBTQ plus traveler isn't anything new. I mean, really, Brand USA included such imagery in some of their earliest videos dating back almost a decade. But for many DMOs, having a strategy to attract LGBTQ plus is still eluding them. It's not something that we're seeing. So for those DMOs that have yet to take the plunge, explain why they need to get on this train. It's a really good question, you know, and the inclusion part is even older than that. There are destinations like Fort Lauderdale and Great Britain that have been in this space for, you know, three decades now. Yeah. But not every DMO should be attracting LGBTQ plus visitors. You know, they really need to make sure that the destination feels safe and welcoming to LGBTQ plus travelers and diverse travelers in general before you go out to invite them. That's a really great point. You don't want to be inviting people who come and have a really uncomfortable experience. And I think for destinations, you also have to have something that's particularly attractive or interesting to queer people if you're going to reach out to them directly. You know, it is a competitive market for many destinations. You know, at Hospitable Me, we've worked with Fort Lauderdale, which is one of the oldest destinations in the marketplace. And we've worked with Discover Puerto Rico, one of the newest in the LGBTQ space. You know, and Puerto Rico went from 19% LGBTQ plus favorable rating among LGBTQ people in the benchmark before we started and 41% favorable a year afterwards. Wow. Part of that is that obviously we did a great job, but part of that (laughs) is that Puerto Rico has these really natural attractions for LGBTQ travelers. It has a large local community. It has extensive queer nightlife. It has gay beaches and three different gay prides. There's a lot of reasons why queer people would look at that and say, oh yeah, I want to go. So those destinations are really in their own playing field. But every DMO needs a strategy for the market because at a minimum, you don't want your marketing to send a message that LGBTQ people are not welcome. Mm -hmm. You know, I think particularly after this past summer and the pandemic with every destination talking about building back better and becoming more inclusive, every DMO needs to be doing the work 
to make their destinations more welcoming and inclusive to LGBTQ plus travelers and all diverse travelers. Everybody's talking about it, but most DMOs are really challenged to know what to do or even where to start. How much of this is reaching out to the resident community to find out, is this a destination? Are we ready? What do you sense? Because I I think back, and this is 1990, really dates me, when I was fresh here in Madison, um, within the first year or two, that's when the, all the research was coming out about African-American travel being such a lucrative space and one that was not being addressed. And so I, I quickly put together what I felt were the top 10, 15 thought leaders in the black community, and we started having discussions. And after the second or third committee meeting, as we were filing out, one of them kind of patted me on the back and said, Bill, we love you and we love that you're focused and you care. But the black population here in Madison is like 6%. <laughs> we really don't have the product. We don't have the neighborhoods. We don't. It's not here yet. Years later, it is here. But in 1990, it really wasn't. How much of this is talking to locals within the market and saying, are we ready? Yeah, I think one of the one common mistake destinations make is they want to reach the market before they're ready to, to welcome the market. We work with uh, a small southern city. And they ran into this problem because they had a a small, tight-knit queer community, but they were also still very conservative. It was still very common to see uh, a Confederate flag waving here and there. And so they wanted to reach the market before they were really ready to welcome them. So exactly what you said, you know, organizing those leaders, creating those LGBTQ networks. Um, we, Billy and I have a, a coaching colleague named Mesa Dong, and she has this really beautiful metaphor. She She talks about the difference between doing cosmetic surgery and doing heart surgery. The cosmetic surgery being the marketing, getting imagery and language down, understanding that your social channels and your websites have to be welcoming to our community. But you can't do that before you've done the heart surgery, before you've actually really looked at who your community is and asked yourself those hard questions. Are we ready to welcome LGBTQ people? And also understanding that LGBTQ people all live their lives at this intersection of other identities, people of color, people of sizes, people of different abilities. Um, And so understanding that we are this vast, very multidiverse or community will really force yourself to ask yourself those questions. You do have to be ready to welcome us before you start to reach out to our community and try to engage us. So I think a lot of destinations over this past summer and winter began to realize that they need to have a more coherent and intentional strategy for black travel. So for those who you've just persuaded to dip a toe, and for those who are already in the game, one of the things I think so many destination marketing organizations found over the past six, eight, 10 months is that they were not asking the right questions. They were not understanding how to go about all this. What don't we know about the LGBTQ market and what are we getting wrong when we attempt to speak to this market? Sure. I think the first thing that a lot of destinations will do is they think being comfortable with LGBTQ means being comfortable with wealthy gay men who are mostly white and mostly able-bodied, and that's just not true. If you want to engage with the LGBTQ community, you have to understand who the L is, who the B is, and most urgently right now, who the T and the Q are, especially trans women of color, trans people of color, people who identify as queer. And, you know, queer is a sort of umbrella term, this sort of 
you know, it encompasses all of these different identities. And the more you know about our community, the more you know that it's constantly growing and evolving and the way that people identify themselves is so incredibly personal. And so that includes intersex people. It includes people who identify as pansexual. It includes two-spirit people, non-binary people, and gender non-conforming people. So the quicker you understand that it's not just wealthy white men that you're going after, the more that you can do a really inclusive welcome for our community. You're only engaging with our community when you take that next step. I think that's one early mistake that people make that is easily fixable. Another is what I had said earlier, you know, being LGBTQ ready before you reach out to us, you know, being ready to welcome our community before you start doing the marketing, before you start putting yourself out there. You know, we don't want to get there and be harassed or be injured or go to a place where we're not welcomed. So making sure that you're ready to welcome us before you reach out to us is critical. And I would say another way that destinations sometimes get it wrong is just simply in the execution of that. And that goes for people like Hospitable Me as much as it does for the destination. A lot of people want to welcome, want to create language and imagery that is welcoming and inclusive, but it comes off as inauthentic or it comes off as it's just not doing the, the job the right way. This isn't guesswork for these destinations. You have to do the work. You have to start consulting with LGBTQ people. You have to bring LGBTQ people into these conversations and make sure that they have a say because we need to be representing them authentically. Underrepresented people want to see themselves. In imagery exclusively, if we want to talk about that, I cannot overstate how important it is to see yourself represented on your websites, in your marketing materials, in authentic and real ways. Um, Billy had mentioned we worked with Discover Puerto Rico. Um, they did a big uh, photo shoot campaign because they wanted to reach the market and they were willing to put their money where their mouth is. So they brought down real LGBTQ models. We took them to places in Puerto Rico where real LGBTQ people go, places like Cabo Rojo that has this incredible pride parade. We did that work because we wanted people to go to Discover Puerto Rico's website and see themselves accurately represented. And, and, and I cannot overstate the importance of that. I like to use the, the example of superheroes. Who are our superheroes? For, for many decades, we had Batman, we had Spider-Man and we had Superman. We had three white, cisgender, thin, wealthy men. So imagine how powerful it was for a young woman to see Wonder Woman for the first time right. or a young yep. black boy to see Black Panther for the first time. When we see ourselves, it makes us feel like we can do it. It makes us feel like we belong. It makes us feel like we're being welcomed. You know, that whole authenticity angle, I think, is crucial. We, over the years, have done essentially video testing of videos and advertising. And, and we use, not unlike what they use, in fact, it's the same technology that they use during the presidential debates. After the debate, you watch a focus group that has, you know, watched the debate and, you know, they're, they're dialing up and down and up and down, like, don't like, like, don't like. And we were testing some uh, video that was focused on black travelers. And as people filed out of the room, fairly unimpressed, one African-American woman came over and same thing and said, thank you so much. We don't dress like that. Yep. <laughs> she goes, it was wonderful. The scenes were great, but no, we don't dress like that. Who dressed them? <laughs> and it clearly was not authentic. So Billy, how do we take that next yeah. step? It's a really interesting point because one of the things we do with destinations is to look at casting and set dressing and locations this isn't about sales and about marketing. It's really about your brand and making your brand feel more welcoming and inclusive. And you need 
experts working on this. Like it's not enough that one of your sales guys is gay and they're giving you input and making suggestions as to how to do this. There are lots of experts available, whether somebody needs the strategy and training that we provide or market research or branded content. You know, as Kenny mentioned, it's critical to connect with the community, both your own local community to get a sense of what resonates for queer people in your destination and and how safe they feel it is and the places where they hang out. I mean, I think particularly in places, you know, that don't have a big gay neighborhood, that don't have a lot of venues that are specific to the LGBTQ community. We found a coffee shop that was gay owned, uh, lesbian owned for a location to shoot a mainstream video for a Southern destination, but one that at least allows LGBTQ people to feel that they belong in the space. And likewise, what that black woman was saying about the clothes, you know, you can put two women that you think look like lesbians in an ad, but if they're not dressed the way lesbians are dressed or made up the way lesbians are made up or not made up, you fail. And I think a lot of times destinations sort of rely on almost stereotyped images of what gay people look like, what black people look like, and the aesthetic choices that are made around depicting people only work if you're putting them in situations that are authentic to them as well. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of destinations who don't know better address these issues of D&I by saying, oh, we have to have a black person in this ad. We have to have a Latin person in this ad. We have to have a queer person in this ad. But they're putting those diverse people into ads that are still created mostly by and for white, cisgendered, heterosexual majority audiences and using the same situations. There's a great book that we use as a reference called How to Draw Black People, and it's mainly designed for illustrators. But the concept is basically if you think about, you know, what a daring, adventurous, slightly nerdy, Um, aspiring songwriter looks like, that person looks differently if that is being expressed in Black culture than if it's being expressed in white culture. And if you have a storyboard that's expressing this in white culture and you cast a Black person in that, it's going to look tokenist because you're not connecting with the community. And I think Kenny's comments around, you know, authentic communications are built by having experts to help you figure out what that mm-hmm. authenticity is. And then, you know, when you vet it with your local community, whether that's the local black community or the local queer community, the destinations that have been most successful in this space are the destinations that have built strong advisory communities in their own location. So there are always going to be people that hold uncomfortable biases, but have we gotten to a point where marketing directors and ad agencies can pretty much stop worrying that there's going to be some sort of backlash of the base if they see two lesbians or two gay guys, you know, hugging or in some sort of sign of affection. Because I, I, I got to tell you, you know, going back to our testing of video, we didn't ever, ever see as much as a half a percentage point dip in people's likability of the videos we were showing them when they came across somebody that was uh, a face of color or a face of a, a different lifestyle. We never saw it, but we keep hearing that there is a fear out there that maybe this would somehow annoy a destination's base. 
Have we gotten past that? I would turn the question to the destination and ask, where are your priorities? If you want to reach the LGBTQ plus community, you have to do this work, right? Because we have the right to take our dollars elsewhere to a company or a destination that does want to reach us and isn't afraid of that potential backlash. I don't know if there will be or not because I can't predict the future, but I would say that you have to ask yourself, is this a community we want? You know, it is a large and loyal and lucrative community. Do we want to be a part of that? Do we want a piece of that? And are we willing to do the real work to earn that? That would be the question I would pose to the destination and I'll pass it back to Billy. Particularly in this country, we're living in a very sectarian, divided time. And a lot of that division is being manifested in social issues, whether it is race or gender identity. Um, you know, certainly right now we're seeing a lot of pushback on mm -hmm. transgender people in all kinds of situations and all kinds of reasons. There's this huge debate going on around transgender athletes. The people complaining about it have had trouble finding 10 athletes where this has been an issue. Yeah. So the fears have generally borne themselves out to be unfounded. You know, in, from the very beginning in the mid 90s, when American Airlines first jumped into this market and did LGBT or at that time, you know, sort of gay and lesbian supportive marketing and sales efforts. There were full page ads in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal encouraging people to boycott American Airlines. Their engagement with the LGBTQ community has been nothing but upside for them. But there's still the fear. And I think there's a pathway. You don't have to go from doing nothing to having gay couples holding hands and kissing in your videos. That first distinction between are you trying to specifically reach out to this community or are you trying to make sure that you're not appearing hostile to this community? If there's a rainbow flag flying somewhere in the background of your video that's literally you know, far in the background versus a Confederate flag flying far in the background, it's not the message you're talking about. It might be unnoticeable to everybody else, but you can be sure that queer people and black people are going to notice the difference between a rainbow flag and a Confederate flag. So I think that first piece of work, which is something, you know, we work with destinations on a lot in terms of what don't you know, what do you need to know about this market and what makes sense as a strategy for you? It may not be a marketing and sales strategy. I think for many destinations at this moment, it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. But to have a strategy that says, can we look at everything we're doing and making sure that both outward facing and inward facing is our organization a comfortable place for queer people to work, for disabled people to work, for people of size to work? Yeah, right. You know, until you make your organizations inclusive and welcoming and bring in diverse talent who are helping create these campaigns and make these decisions, that's really when you will gain the confidence and the capability to be marketing to diverse audiences. And, you know, we used to talk about LGBTQ like it was a niche, but, you know, millennials and Gen Z have very different attitudes towards gender and sexuality. 52% of millennials and Gen Z identified as something other than straight yeah. in a recent Day Walter Thompson survey. So it's a completely different attitude towards gender and sexuality. And it's not just about reaching the 5% or 7% or 10% of queer people mm -hmm. in your potential audience. It's about 
being more inclusive so that the majority of the next generations, people who care about diversity and inclusion, feel like your destination shares those values. And that's work that every destination can start and needs to start. Yeah, and that's one hell of a number, 52%. So last question. Well, we've had you on our guest list since we launched DMOU two years ago, but a brand new offering from Hospitable Me was the moment that Terry and I looked at each other and went, okay, now, let's get them on right now. You're about to launch a really cool program. Tell us about the brand new masterclass. So we are really excited for our new class. It's an online on-demand course that's really the culmination of five years of doing this training all over the world. We've taken this complicated subject and made it approachable and easy. So it's a comprehensive course about who LGBTQ plus people are, the pain points we experience as consumers and guests, and the many things you can do to help us feel safe, respected, and welcome. It's a little bit of history, a little psychology, a little biology, even a little believe it or not. Um, There are some funny points. There are some moving points. It's 11 modules. It's about four hours of video content, exercises, and quizzes. And it's really actionable. Uh, You finish not only with a completion certificate, but with a list of practical things you can start doing right away to be immediately more welcoming and inclusive. And uh, people can enroll directly on our website at hospitable.me and then complete the course on their own schedule. There's also a 22-step workbook that turns the course into kind of a train-the-trainer program by allowing the person who's gone through the course to facilitate conversations and share key concepts and actions with their team. So that has additional resources and discussion topics and team exercises that you would then work through these 22 steps, mostly in order. Sometimes you might skip a step that's harder to implement, Uh, and move on to something that's easier in your particular situation. You know, the course and the workbook combined are under $1,000. And I think we have a special offer for DMO Pro's listeners. It's a 20% off discount of either the course or the course and the workbook. You are so kind. Thank you. You're welcome. The coupon code is PRIDE2021. So PRIDE, all capital letters, 2021. um, And it's good through Pride Month. So through the end of June. Excellent. All right. Well, guys, this is really exciting. Uh, Thank you for the insight that you've provided um, to get those of us that are dipping our toe to get more intentional. And for those maybe who haven't quite gotten the nerve to dive into something that they don't really know and they they don't want to make a mistake. And that's one of the things, you know, Elliot Ferguson was on a couple of uh, months ago. And he said, one of the most difficult things for a DMO CEO or any CEO is to admit that they don't know something or that they are wrong. And he says, that's what holds everybody back from doing the right thing. And so if hopefully this conversation we've had today gives people the impetus to step forward and give it a shot, but we can't let you go before your bonus round questions. So Kenny, let's start with you. We often think that masters and doctorate theses focus on meaty subjects of great weight. And yes, I know there's a pun or two in there. Tell us what your master's thesis was on and more importantly, why? So I wrote my master's thesis at uh, Columbia on professional wrestling. Gotta love it. Um, Gotta love it. Nothing meatier than professional wrestling, Bill. (laughs) As meaty as it gets. So hard to explain this, but I sometimes have a harder time coming out as a professional wrestling fan than I do as a queer man. (laughs) Um, It is just one of those things. And you get it or you don't. I've always kind of had this weird 
interest in it. It's this performance art. Um, it seems like to me, it's always seemed like this incredibly thankless profession. And so I originally set out to answer the question of why would someone get into it? And I followed three professional wrestlers around at different stages of their career. One was a man named Jimmy Snuka, who in the early 1980s would sell out Madison Square Garden. Um, when I got to him in 2010, he was wrestling in front of about 14 people in a gymnasium in Rochester. Wow. Um, the second person I followed was a man named Darren Drozdov, who was accidentally dropped on his head and paralyzed from the neck down. And the third was a brand new budding wrestler where I could kind of get three different kind of concepts of someone who has been, you know, almost fatally injured in the ring, someone who is really just beaten down by this profession, and then someone who's kind of bright-eyed and optimistic about it. And what I found was a few different things. I found that for a lot of young athletes who will have aspirations of being in the, uh, you know, the NFL or the NBA or to play professional baseball, they'll blow out a knee, but they'll be very young. They'll be 22 or 23 years old. They'll be big. And maybe they didn't have a lot of backup, um, a lot of backup plans. And professional wrestling really does become, for a lot of athletes, this place where you can go and still be athletic and still maybe achieve a lot of money or fame and do something that you love. And so it really did become this story of chasing the American dream in a way. And as I started to research it and investigate it, I found that there were a lot of American stories in there. Uh, going back to the 70s before wrestling was on television, there were a bunch of different wrestling territories in Calgary and Minneapolis and Memphis and Georgia and Florida and New York. And the wrestling we know on television that Vince McMahon owned, World Wrestling Entertainment, that started in New York as a very, very small territory that just started to eat up all of these other smaller territories and create this monopoly. And I saw this story of capitalism. I, if you kind of track the characters and storylines from the 70s till now, you'll see America versus Russia. You'll see America versus Iraq. You'll see the entire American story through wrestling. And you can also track, even if you watch our economy, you'll see when wrestling attendance figures and pay-per-view sales dip, our economy dips. And so really through telling this story of this young kid's American dream put against these other older wrestlers who had kind of experienced this American nightmare, I found this way to tell this American story. And so it started with a simple question of why but then it kind of became this much larger story of, I think, our country. And the way they blur the lines between reality and fantasy was just endlessly fascinating to me. Yeah, and like that Rocky song, is it East versus West? Is that what draws us? I mean, we know better, right? All of us know better, and yet so many of us are fans. It's like watching a magician. We are so drawn to what is clearly not real, although parts of it are. Is it our moment in time that it reflects I think it triggers the same thing that for young kids, um, comic books trigger. You know, we have superheroes and we have villains and it tells a very, you know, tried and true story. I think the difference is that in a comic book, they're drawing. And so in order to get your body to look like that, you have to fill it with steroids and endless days on yeah. the road and drugs. And what we don't realize is that the real life superheroes are killing themselves to entertain us. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I would love to read it sometime if you can shoot me a copy. I, th I think it would be just to. fascinating. Billy, let's go over to you now. You were, take a deep breath here, you were the number one Avon lady in Manhattan, south of 96th Street, for five straight years. Tell us how that came about and how it ended in the Wall Street Journal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is an interesting trajectory. Uh, I turned 30. And went right from acne to wrinkles. <laughs> uh, there's got to be something better. 
and uh, put my Yale biology degree to use in researching anti-aging skincare. And at the time, the uh, brand new cutting edge thing was alpha hydroxy acids. Now, okay. you know, very well known, but at the time exclusive to Avon in the U.S. And wow. so I'd never seen an Avon lady. I'd never seen an Avon catalog. But I started ordering this product online and really liking it and telling my friends about it and clicked a little box that said, if you're interested in earning opportunities, click here and uh, realized I could make some pretty good money by recommending this really great skincare to people. So I built a large business selling skincare and indeed, you know, got a lot of little award statues and a couple cruises uh, as sales award cool. for uh, my sales. But, you know, Avon was the original social networking company, when you think about it. And yeah, seven or so years ago, eight or nine years ago, right when we started Man About World, I had a very public falling out with the company leadership around their slow adoption of online and socially networked sales tools. And when the CEO, then CEO, Andrea Jung, stepped down as uh, CEO, but stayed on as chairman of the board. The Wall Street Journal wrote a critical article quoting uh, James Preston, previous CEO of Avon, and me. So it actually didn't end my Avon sales career. I still have an Avon. Really? Right? I still have about okay. people uh, selling Avon underneath me. I still get a check every two weeks from their uh, work. That's great. And I still use their products. The US company was bought by LG, the Korean conglomerate. Mm -hmm. and so they've actually been releasing some of their Korean skincare brands through Avon US and their really great products. So once again, my Avon, my Avon career sort of come full circle back to a really great product that I love and share. <laughs> and people can find that at youravoncom slash Billy. <laughs> wow. I got to tell you, man, a, a man of many faces, right? A man of many well-moisturized faces. Avon was a really good training in sales and super inspiring. The mostly women who have built businesses from nothing uh, with that company and achieved financial independence is really remarkable. And, you know, I think when you look at things that happened, you know, like this last year where people suddenly had to pivot and find a way to make money, direct sales is still a really powerful venue. But we, you know, we've, even the magazine now is, is a tiny part of, of our, of our daily life, the training, the, you know, both creating the new online training. And we do a lot of obviously in-person training and speaking live over the web so that's really, I have time to use the product. I don't really have a lot of time to sell it anymore. Right. Very cool. Or bake many banana cream pies. <laughs> Guys, thank you for both of those great stories and for all you do. And again, congratulations on the new masterclass. Tell us again where we can learn more. So uh, hospitable.me. And uh, the online course is linked right from the, the main menu on top. And a special discount for DMO pros users, right? Exactly. All right. Pride 2021. Okay, Pride 2021 is the code, and it's good through June of 2021. Hey, guys, thanks a bunch. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you out on the road. And that's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers, this is where the best and the brightest get together to tell inspiring stories for DMO pros. Thanks, too, to our sponsor, Searchwide Global, the premier executive search firm in the DMO space. Mike Gamble and his team uncover the talent out there that's not looking, meaning that clients get a far richer candidate base from which to choose than just placing ads in publications and online. If you're looking for a new opportunity or looking for the perfect candidate, call them. You can learn more at searchwideglobal.com. 
The allnewdmopros.com is where you're going to find more on our services to the DMO world, plus links to past editions of the Z News, the book Destination Leadership, the biggest DMO job board on the planet, as well as links to earlier episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.